From their studio in the Feeding Arizona building in Youngtown, Arizona, it's the Boomer and the Babe Show with Pete Peters and Deborah Brown. Join Pete and Deborah and their guests as they give voice to 78 million baby boomers from coast to coast and border to border. Now here are the Boomer and the Babe, Pete Peters and Deborah Brown. And yes, thanks for listening. It is the Boomer and the Babe Show. It is, uh, it is, what is this, Tuesday, I guess. Uh, Tuesday, and it is 9 o'clock for the Boomer and the Babe Show. A little different time today, but 9 o'clock for the Boomer and the Babe Show here in Phoenix. 8 o'clock on the West Coast, and 11 o'clock. Boy, I hope I get my time time zones correct. 11 o'clock on the East Coast. And it's appropriate that we have the guests we have today that we're going to get to. Uh, Jay Ewing with Bird Golf, seeing us how this is Phoenix Open Week here in Arizona. And uh, we're looking forward to that as well. But before we do that, I want to invite everybody to uh, go to boomerandthebabe.com, sign up for our online newsletter by filling in the information on our mailing list, and you will get the newsletter on a regular basis getting into your inbox uh, from uh, every four to six weeks out. So with no further ado, I'll say welcome to Jay Ewing of Bird Golf. How are you, Jay? Great, thanks, Pete. It's great to be on your show again. Yes, I know. We had you on here, what, about a month and a half ago, I guess it was, on the uh, on the golf show that we do. Uh, but now we're going to do a little something something a little bit different. We're going to have you on this Boomer the Babe show but that we say is basically the national show. Uh, and after all, you are a national concern, and a lot of people don't know that. So why don't we uh, just start by you giving us a little background as to uh, what you do, who you are, and a little bit about your organization. Well, thank you so much, Pete. Um, The Bird Golf Academy is unique in the golf learning arena because for many reasons. Um, We have 18 locations around the country. We're in Napa, California, San Diego, Palm Springs. Our flagship site is at the incredible Wild Horse Pass Resort and Spa in Chandler, Arizona. Um, Then we're up at the Sedona Golf Resort in Prescott. And then, of course, on the East Coast, or we're also in Las Vegas and then Colorado, and then on the East Coast, we're at Seaview Golf Resort, which is an amazing old historic property just outside of Atlantic City that hosts the LPGA Tour ShopRite Classic. Then we're at Myrtle Beach at Wachachua Plantation East, which is a wonderful uh, link-style facility. Further down the coast, we're at Jekyll Island, Georgia, which is one of my favorite properties. And then, of course, in Florida, we have four great locations at Old Corkscrew Golf Club on the West Coast, at the Boca Coin Country Club and the Boca Waldorf Astoria Boca Resort in Boca Raton, and then at Mission Inn Resort, which is just north of Orlando, and at Pelican Bay Country Club in Daytona. So we have really a site for everybody all around the country. But what truly separates our golf school from any other, Pete, is that we only teach <coughs> please excuse me we only teach one or two on one so we don't do group instruction in any way because we just don't feel that it's the most effective way for people to learn but everything that we do is customized for our students so they pick the dates they'd like and of course we work with them on the areas of their game they want to focus on our school days are 6 hours in length <coughs> excuse me again and include a daily playing lesson, which is we, we feel is vital for our students to really make significant improvement, to do it not just on the driving range, but when they're playing on the golf course as well. And the really significant thing about our school, not just our format and all the things that separate us, but it's going to be who teaches the students, because most golf schools are headed up by one famous person. 
and then somebody would work with one of their assistants being taught a method or a system and meaning no disrespect to any other of the great schools out there but our philosophy is completely different because we feel that a really great teacher understands a great many methods and styles of teaching and they put the right one with the right person rather than teaching everybody all the same stuff so each of our teachers have been a PGA or LPGA professional for a minimum of 25 years. They include uh, a National Teacher of the Year, PGA Master Professionals and multiple award-winning PGA professionals, six members of multiple Halls of Fame. Um, the newest member of our teaching family is extraordinary, just as all of our teachers are, but her name is Sandra Palmer, who had a legendary career on the LPGA Tour where she won 19 times, including three majors and a Player of the Year title. But most importantly, she was mentored by the great Harvey Pennick, um, who most of us consider as the greatest teacher that ever lived. And Sandra spent 35 years with Mr. Pennick. So as you could imagine, the experience somebody would have over a three, four, or five-day period working with someone like Sandra, one or two-on-one, or any one of our amazing professionals, is really a learning experience that's second to none. Um, our registered trademark, Pete, is that we want to provide our students with the ultimate golf learning experience, and that's what we try to do in every conceivable way. Well, that's all good information, I tell you. As you were ticking off your locations, I was trying to keep up with you, and I didn't do it. How many total are there? We have 18 locations around the country. Okay, it was 18. I I yep. lost track somewhere around 12, I think. <laughs> <laughs> I surprised myself that I could remember them all like that, actually, Pete. There you um, go. <laughs> you must have one, got me on a good morning. There you go. One one thing that uh, uh one thing that I really appreciate in what you said is that you have a daily playing lesson. Now, I, for one, having not played golf nearly as much as I would like for any number of reasons in the last several years, but nonetheless, uh, even when I did go to, do go to play golf on the very rare occasion that I get to do it, uh, I go to the driving range and I can I don't even hit a, a small bucket of balls, a full full bucket of small, uh, because frankly. Uh, all I need to do on the driving range is to get loose. That's all. I mean, if I'm hitting them left, I'm hitting them right. I'm doing whatever I'm doing. Okay, fine. Uh, I try to get I try to get the club head under control on the driving range at probably about oh, 20 shots, maybe. And after that, I figure there's nothing left for me to do here because I'm not going to work on my game per se. I'm going to go to the golf course. So if I hit a bad shot now, I've got a little time to cogitate mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. the, the next shot and the fact that it's a playing lesson uh, gives I would imagine gives somebody a, an opportunity for some discussion with the pro gives them an opportunity to uh, walk through the process of prepare, uh, preparation for the next shot and so on uh, which you, you can't do that on a, on a driving range because uh, it's just strictly mechanics and you turn into a machine if you're not careful well, that's true, and you know a lot of folks will complain about being great driving range players, um, but then they they lose it all on the golf course, and mm-hmm. there's lots of reasons for that. But 
when you're playing the game, you're, you want to do exactly as you said. You want to be able to play the game. One of the things that people get really stuck with is that they try to work on their game on the golf course. And mm -hmm. there are two definite arenas to learn. I mean, the practice range is where you want to work on your mechanics and, and, and learn new things and develop skills and then most importantly turn those new skills into habits. But when you're on the golf course, you really don't want to be doing a whole lot of thinking. Um, if you see folks, if you watch touring players that are struggling, you'll see them rehearsing their swing and thinking way too much. So, yes, there's very definitely two arenas. The practice range is where you learn, and the golf course is where you play. Well, I've always found that when, I, when I'm on the range, hitting my 15, 20 shots, whatever it is, to get loose and, and get, get a little bit warm, uh, I, I, fi I try to walk off the range hitting a driver as my last shot and having it to be as good a driver as I think I'm going to hit that day. Mm -hmm. uh, and then when I take that driver, assuming that I'm on a, a, a far four hole or, and I'm hitting a driver off the first tee, I think I, I have a pretty good feel or a pretty good idea as to what my drives are going to look like, what my game's going to look like that day, and I mm -hmm. prepare myself to play within that game. In other words, if I'm hitting if I'm hitting a fade that is a little out of control, but not not three fairways over, uh, I'm going to have to play that fade. I mean, I can't try to straighten that thing out at every tee box because I'm going to be all over the place then. So I think you have to play within yourself, don't you? Well, whatever you Very have much so. And actually, yeah, I mean, you've you've actually just alluded to something that the great Jack Nicklaus did. You know, most of his career, he favored a fade. So that was his natural shot, to hit a shot from left to right. And, um, in fact, there's a, there's a great story. When Nicklaus first came out on tour in the early 60s and he hit this fade, he was one of the few, if not the only, player that played a fade. All the pros in those days would play basically a draw a shot from right to left. And so all the players on tour told Jack um, in his rookie year that he'd really never be any good until he learned how to draw the ball. So he'd had really one coach his whole life, Jack Grout up in Ohio, and he went to a different professional and um, spent a year working on the draw. Well, inter interestingly enough, this was the only year he didn't win a tournament on tour. And at the end of the year, he sort of took stock of things and, um, he uh, he. Now, by this time, he was hitting a, a great draw, but he wasn't winning. And so he went back sort of with his tail between his legs to see his old coach, Jack Grout. And Jack uh, got him on the, on the practice tee. And after Nicholas warmed up, Jack said, OK, well, hit me a high fade with your driver. Well, as most of your golf viewers would know, Nicholas had what we would call a flying right elbow. So at the top of his backswing, his right elbow would be sticking out. Um, away from him, and to that would allow him to fade the ball. Well, having learned to hook it, he changed that elbow position so it was in a more standard position at the top of his backswing where his elbow was tucked, and that, of course, was allowing him to draw the ball but not win. So anyway, so Jack Grout said, hit me a fade with your driver. So sure enough, out went the elbow again, and off went the 10- or 15-yard fade, and hit Nicholas hit one perfect fade after the other for about 10 strokes, and Jack Grout looked at him, he said, I wouldn't change that again if I were you, and he walked off the driving range. And Nicholas didn't. So that's, um, they, you know, you really want to dance with who you came with um, right. when you're playing. And Nicholas, interestingly enough, now, of course, we're talking about um, arguably the greatest, if not one of the two greatest players in history. But when he was warming up on the range, if um, if he would have a different, 
shot pattern. When he was warming up, he would actually stick with that. So even though 98% of the time he would play that fade, he had lots of shots he could play. But if he was warming up and his shot pattern was straight or perhaps a draw, then that's what he would play that day. So it's very much about playing within yourself, as you as you just suggested. Absolutely. I, I was uh, I was covering the um, uh, I don't know it was one of the one of those skins games, and I think that's where Trevino was talking about. Uh, somebody asked Trevino about the fact that he's always hitting his. Oh, I don't know what the heck they call it, but it was a fade, a slice. Some people would call it a slice. It was mm-hmm. some call it a, some people call it a slap. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yep. anything but he he would always he would always say that it doesn't matter what you look like when you finish or what when you look like when you start as long as you're square at impact that was number one thing he said he says then why did you prefer a, a slice to a to a uh, to a draw he says or a fade to a draw and he says well he says you can talk to a slice but a hook never listens Right. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> it's true. Yeah. That was Torino's comment on going right versus going left. So I found that to be rather interesting. So I, I just, I decided that you know what, my, my, my fade sometimes slice. You know, I, I can work with this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, it's but, you're 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 spot on, and of course Trevino, as unorthodox as he was at the time, of course now we recognize that he he was a lot more orthodox than we ever knew. Um, because of what he did with his swing. But he is certainly one of the three greatest ball strikers in history, mm-hmm. probably with Hogan and um, in the latter-day Tiger. But those three are pretty much acknowledged as the best three consistent ball strikers that ever lived. Well, you've mentioned Tiger. Uh, I'm sure you probably saw the thing over at Torrey Pines, uh, the, the, uh, the, the the walk in the fog at, at Torrey Pines. Yeah, uh, yeah. Um, what, what did you think about uh, his performance there? Well, you know, it's funny. I mean, he gets so nitpicked anymore. So he, he wins by four, and everybody's sort of rather disappointed with that. Um, very few tour players win tour events by four strokes these days because of uh, all the talent out there. And of course, he had an eight-shot lead with five holes to play, and he played some pretty sort of poor golf for him during the last five holes. But there's a lot of reasons for that. I think it took them three hours and ten minutes to play the back nine, which is tragically bad. And this is something that the tour has to really address seriously for for once is slow play because that's just that's ridiculous. For three great players to take um three hours and ten minutes to play nine holes, that that's just insane. Um and I think that that affected him. Um but also, you know, the one real weakness, I think, in his game as it stands today, he's been working with Sean Foley now for the last two years, and this is, of course, his third major swing overhaul in his career, which in and of itself is extraordinary. I don't know any other player that could have um, gone through three massive changes like they or he has so successfully. Um, but he seems to be getting more and more comfortable with that. The one aspect of his game that's perhaps not quite up to the rest of it right now is his driving. He's still erratic with that. He missed a lot of fairways, but his iron play was perhaps the best ever I've ever seen him, and his short game is really coming back. And, of course, that's where so many people overlook his skill as a player is what an incredible short game he has. So I think he's pretty much all the way there. And, um, you know, an eight-shot lead with five to play is pretty impressive. It may not quite be what he did at Pebble when he won that by 15 strokes, which is, of course, the benchmark everybody 
puts him up against. But I think we're very close to seeing the very best Tiger come back again very, very soon. Well, he's a victim of his own success. Uh, yeah. He, he, he Because he has been uh, at that pinnacle of, of that huge victory at Pebble and, and some others along the way, uh, the, the hole that he, the shot that he hit uh, in the Masters from behind the green that, that toppled into the hole, and all the things and the great shots that he's hit over the years, uh, that has caused people to expect that of him every time out, every time he swings a club. Yes, very much so. And um, I forget the exact number, but I think it's in the 290s. He may have played 293 or so, I think, PGA Tour events so far in his career, and he's won 75 of them. So that's an amazing clip to be winning almost, or to be winning 25% of the time. As mm-hmm. great as Jack Nicholas was in his career, he only won 10% of the time, and that was extraordinary. So I think you're right. He set the bar so high that um, we almost expect things that are really not possible from him. Um, But, um, you know, he's still relatively young in golf terms because he's 37 years old. I think that when he gets completely comfortable with this swing that he's worked on with Sean Foley, um, I really do think that we'll see the Tiger that we remember from 10 years ago. Um, and that would be extraordinary still because the players are that much better 10 years on. I mean, there are so many good young players, and they really don't have any fear um, of winning. Right. You know, they're, they're ready to win when they come out there, so it's pretty extraordinary. They step right off the college ranks, go out, qualify, and, and expect to win. I mean, it's amazing, and, and you're right. They show no fear. Uh, it used to be called respect, but they don't have that anymore either. They're just going to come out and say, I'm going to whip your butt. Come on, let's go. And and, and they're uh, they're very uh, single-minded about things, and they're, uh, and, and they're very self-confident. So that really does uh, changes, I think, the game of golf a lot when it, when you're talking about the uh, the young tour players, the young lions coming up and uh, and making a mark. Very much so. And there's an extraordinary um, group of talented young American players, especially in their 20s, that um, we're going to be seeing a lot of in the next few years. But um, and then of course Rory McIlroy, who's the world's number one player. Uh, from Ireland, Northern Ireland, um, he's he is an exceptional player, the likes of which is there's only one other like him, and that's Tiger. So if both of those players were to play on all cylinders this year, I think 2013 could be an amazing year for golf as far as watching golf as a fan and, and watching these incredible players because they, they are extraordinary. Well, I, speaking of young players and, and, and new newcomers to the tour, I just pulled up as we're speaking here. I pulled up the uh, uh, the list of golfers that are committed to the Phoenix Open here at Phoenix Open Week uh, here in Arizona, and mm-hmm. uh, and I'm looking at the names, and there's a lot of them on there that I don't recognize. I tell you, they, you uh, I, I mean, I'm older than dirt, but I mean, uh, you know, the, a lot of these a lot of these players that I don't know. Who the heck they are? I think maybe I, for instance, who's Chris Stroud? I don't know who Chris Stroud is. Uh, he may have been around for twenty years, but I don't know him. No, he's uh, been around for a few years, but he's again a very talented young player. And you saw it at the um, 
at the Sony Open in Hawaii. The young man who won there, Henley. I mean, he's amazing. And um, he won his first PGA Tour start. So um, there is there are literally a host of these young players that we're going to get to know better and better over the next few years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Matt Every. Um, Matt Every. Do you who know Matt Every? Matt yet? Every. Yep, another very very talented player. Now he's a little older than um, this initial group. I think he might almost be thirty by now. He's been around for quite a while. He's a heck of a ball striker. Um, you're watching if you're watching. Um, Tory Pines. I really uh, think that Nick Watney, who's won a few times already on tour, is a student of Butch Harmon's. I think this young man has a huge future. He's 28 years old. He's won, I think, four times already. Um, and I think he came third at Tory. But he has got a massive future. He's got a great golf swing. And I think he might be perhaps the best of the young American players. All right. Well, I, 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 let's uh, talk a little bit, if you don't mind, Jay, about the Phoenix Open, seeing as how it is Phoenix Open week, and uh, I've got my press credential, and I'm going to be out there. Uh, and I want uh, I want to discuss uh, the 16th hole. Um, they say that this the whole thing here, this is the, the greatest show on grass, uh, is the way they bill it, and they bill it as the most well-attended consecutive event going over so many years, or whatever it is, I don't know how they, but they, they, the way they word it, they word it so that the the, uh, the attendance is this huge number, of course, which it really is, but nonetheless, they say it's the hugest, the biggest event, and so on and so forth, regularly scheduled, and I think they throw in the words regularly scheduled so they don't have to compete against the Olympics. Right, uh, <laughs> yeah. But but it is a hugely attended event, and uh, the 16th hole, as everybody knows, anybody that's at all interested in golf knows about the 16th hole. Uh, we yep. had a, we had occasion to be out there. Uh, uh, last Wednesday with uh, with Golf Mix, one of our uh, uh, people that we affiliate with here on uh, for our golf show, and right. uh, the pro that was on the tee box at uh, 16 was Aaron Oberholzer. And, and Aaron was hitting shots to the 16th green, and the people were coming up and trying to beat his shot. And we were talking an awful lot about the Phoenix Open and a lot about the 16th hole in particular. Uh, Aaron says that the players don't mind the noise. He says if the roar continues and it's loud throughout the swing and the whole nine yards, that's not a problem. It's when it goes silent and then just before they hit <laughs> the right. roar hit, that's yep. where they've got a problem. What are your thoughts on distraction of tour players? Um, I feel they're professionals. Deal with it. They're making big money. Deal with it. That's my thought. What do you think? Well, yeah, I mean, definitely they have to, and and they have to play in an environment which most golfers would never experience, and it takes a while to get comfortable with that. Um, I think that the uh, Waste Management is a fantastic tournament. They've done so many great things for charities over the years. They've raised so much money for incredible incredible charities and, and doing so many good works. Um, the players, I think, are probably terrified of two holes on the PGA Tour, and that's one of them, um, for the same reasons that Aaron outlined. I mean, you just never know when that's coming because it's frenzied. And, of course, um, I understand they, 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 um, they, they sell adult beverages there for most of the day. So the later <laughs> in the day that you're playing, the louder the crowd gets. And um, yeah. 
it's uh it yeah so it gets to be really boisterous by 4:30 in the afternoon if you're in one of the final groups coming through um and then of course the other hole that terrifies everybody is a short hole it's only 120 so yards but that's the 17th at the TPC the tournament players championship in Sawgrass in Florida so the island green that's become so famous Pete Dye's signature green but both of those holes are holes that every player on tour um has um has thoughts about and uh for us as fans it's great theater i and as far as noise goes i i i agree with you to an extent pete and i think that they have to be able to handle all sorts of thick situations but i would also hope that all the the things that golf stands for which are being courteous to people um playing within the rules obviously having good manners and a certain decorum i hope we don't ever get away from that and have a sort of a soccer style um environment with fans and screaming and and rioting and that kind of stuff i i hope that golf never gets away from that um and and that people remember that being golfers means that we behave a little bit differently so but the players have to play um in some pretty raucous situations and that's fine they have to learn to do that and there there's definitely a learning curve with that getting comfortable with it well i i yes and and i think that it has to be uh, understood that that is the way it is on that particular hole at this golf tournament. Um, and it may be the only place on tour anywhere that that happens. I'm, I'm sure that there have been other places now that have in some, at some level tried to duplicate it. Uh, but there's, there's the, this whole tournament, the whole Phoenix open has had a reputation over many, many years of being, um, Oh, what's the word? Uh, rather bodacious. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> rambunctious. <laughs> rambunctious is good. Uh, yeah. It has a rep- it has a reputation for uh, the women in their in their stilettos on the golf course. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's uh, there are there are stories beyond belief. A couple of which I have witnessed uh, over the years that are are you just you just shake your head and you go. Wow, this is yes. golf. You know, this is golf. <laughs> <laughs> it's golf on steroids, I think. Oh my gosh, it is! I'll never forget the time that my late father and I were at the Phoenix Open at Phoenix uh, at Phoenix Country Club, and uh, we were watching. Uh, I don't know who it was, maybe even Gene Lippmer or somebody like that uh, of that era of uh, putting. And every the crowd was dead silent, dead still. And all of a sudden, down the fairway, uh, down the cart path comes, click, 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 and everybody stops. Look, here is one of the most gorgeous women you've ever seen in your life, with her high heels and her shimmery jumpsuit, and every bit of her quivered as she walked with every step that she took. And the whole group, the players and the audience. Uh, the gallery turned around and watched her walk by, and then they went. <laughs> and you could hear as she went by, you could hear a, uh, an audible "Wow!" <laughs> <laughs> and that's the Phoenix Open. Yeah. Uh, that is the Phoenix Open, and that's all part of it. And I was there yesterday uh, for a very brief time, just getting a lay of the land and, and, and kind of moseying around. 
and it was cold and rainy, and the women were out yesterday. It's just amazing to me. I don't know if they're all looking for a young golf pro or what, but boy, well, boy. there's a yeah, well, no, there's a contingent of ladies that follow the tour, and mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. you uh, there, you know, especially with all these young men, it's actually something that they have to be very careful about because it's, absolutely, uh, yeah, it's. Um, yeah, there's there's there is a very there is a very distinct fan following though. So yeah, golf has a lot of different fans. It does, all ages and shapes. <laughs> Indeed, yes, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Let's get back to talking about golf. Do you think Tiger's going to break Jack's records? I don't know. I I I think that you know four majors is a lot. I mean, for so long he made it seem like he would win two or three every year, and that of course came to an end. Um, and now the older he gets, the more pressure that he gets too um, to 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 accomplish that. I mean, he's been obviously since day one very vocal that he wanted to break this record of Nicholas's. That's that's really his whole desire. I I would say it's fifty fifty really um, that he might break the record because he'd still have to win five more majors. It's certainly very possible. I think the more likely record he'll break is Sam Snead's record of 86 tour wins. That would mean 11 more tour wins, and I think he'll he'll do that comfortably. But Nicholas's record, um, I I really think I'm on the fence with that one. I'm not I'm not yet convinced he owns this new swing. I think that there's a lot of things to um, take as positives, obviously, from what he did last the last few days at Torrey Pines. But his driver and and his inaccuracy with his driver still would bother me if I was working with him. Yeah, yeah, I would tend I would tend to agree. I, I I'm not so sure he's going to get those majors that he needs. Uh, he he may he would he may tie Nicholas. I don't know that he would get ahead of him. Uh, I think that would be possibly the best that that could be hoped for. Um, I'm all, I also uh, I also think that it's a real shame that he got himself involved in all the stuff he was involved in, and then of course his health with his knee and his leg and the whole nine yards that caused even further uh, further debilitation. And it, it just it just really knocked him back by. Uh, what probably three years, wouldn't you say? Uh, was it about? Yeah, three years? I think he lost a good three years, and you know, of course, changing his swing again, um, which is a very, very difficult thing to do. He's really the only person on the planet that could have done what he's done three times. He's completely reworked his golf swing three times as a professional, and that's just amazing. I mean, how talented someone is to be able to do that, but. Um, that clock is ticking, and every major that he plays that he doesn't win, that puts more pressure on the next performance. So um, they're they're hard events to win. They really are. And of course, for so long, for so many years, he made it look routine. And um, and I think, as you mentioned earlier, Pete, you know that he is perhaps almost um, a victim of his own success. And and the expectations that he expects and we expect for him, perhaps they're not realistic. Why would somebody at that level, uh, at the level that he has played at for all of these years, why in the dickens would they want to rework their swing? I mean, it, it seems to me that if it's not broke, don't fix it. Yeah, well, there's there's sort of lots of theories about that out there, um, why he would do that. Um, he's a very stubborn character. So I think he's one of these people that if you challenged him and said you couldn't do something then that would just be all the fuel he'd need to try to prove you wrong. And um, I think because so many people would have advised against 
doing something like this because it is a pretty drastic um, sort of removal from what he's doing with uh, Sean Foley today with how he was swinging with Hank Haney and then conversely before Haney, of course, it was Butch Harmon. And uh, just the, the swing is very, very different. The mechanics are very, very different that he's doing now. So it, it's very difficult. But again, every time you doubt this person, he proves us wrong. So um, I don't know that there's any other player out there that could have done what he's done. And again, as I said, not to uh, be too critical, but I I don't think that this motion is conducive to becoming a great driver of the golf ball um, because it's a little bit of an upright motion that he's making with his swing. And if your timing's not perfect, you're going to usually block it or hit it to the right pretty substantially unless you flip it with your hands late. And then in that case, you'll hit a hard hook, which are the two big misses that he consistently has with this motion. Um, I think he swung best, and this is just my opinion, but I think he swung best when he worked with Butch Harmon um, for the years up until 2002. When he was... When he won the Tiger Slam, which is when he won five majors in a row, not all in a calendar year, but he won a Grand Slam, I don't know that I've ever seen anybody swing a golf club more perfectly than he did during that year. So that that that's just my two cents worth. Well, I I think I mean I'm not the I'm certainly the least one of the least people to to analyze Tiger Woods for crying out loud. But you mentioned that he's a stubborn guy and. Uh, and it, I think his maybe if that's the case, his stubbornness has gotten into some problems. His, his stubbornness has gotten into some him into some problems, possibly with with Butch Harmon. Possibly it got him into uh, some problems with his caddy Stevie. Uh, you know, and there have been any number of times when uh, you just wonder well, what what are you doing? You know, as I said earlier, it's not broke. Don't fix it. Well, you know that the, there's an interesting sort of tight tightrope. Uh, Pete, that golfers have to walk because a lot of the traits that you need to be a great player are not necessarily nice human traits. Um, what I mean by that, for instance, let's take Jack Nicklaus. Um, Jack Nicklaus um, is not able to remember any failure he's ever had, mm-hmm. but he could tell you every success in detail. So he's got a very selective memory. Now, whether that translates to his everyday personage, I don't know. But as a professional golfer, the great players universally never blame themselves when 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 something goes wrong. That's just not in their makeup. It's just it's not their fault. And they're able to have that quick memory because if they're plagued by um, the failures that they've had, they would never succeed. So they have to have a very short memory. Um, if they're able to switch that off, though, from being a competitive golfer to a human being, more power to them. But um, a lot of that carries through to your everyday persona. And um, Tiger's stubbornness is definitely a trait that's great for him on the golf course. Um, the way he conducts himself is sort of aloof. That's great for him on the golf course. As a human being, I think that's a whole different thing again. Well, it, it, it sounds uh, it sounds almost as though you're describing a defensive halfback in the NFL. Yeah, almost. They have to forget. Yeah, it's uh, yeah. yeah, exactly. There'd be a couple of Bronco uh, cornerbacks that could probably testify to that about right now. Yeah, well, that guy never burned me. What are you talking about? He never burned me. It wasn't it wasn't my coverage, man. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. But yeah, there you very much. 
Yeah, it, it's always somebody else or something else. Uh, is 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 that you, you is that you think uh, what separates the consistent winners on tour from the uh, not so con- the, from the top flight, but not not as not a top flight winner. Uh, is, is that mentality what uh, what is the differentiator? Yeah, I think in a lot of respects, really, Pete, it is because it's a crucible out there. I mean, if somebody has never experienced something like that, it would be very hard for them to understand. But hitting a golf shot in front of fifteen or 20,000 people is a pretty terrifying experience the first time you try to do that a few times. And hitting poor shots, that, that will wreck your confidence. Um, so you have to be able to immediately... Um, forgive yourself for a poor shot that that you've got to have that short term memory um, because if you allow those things to permeate themselves you, you you'll never break ninety i mean you'd be you'd be a tragic mess out there and there have been lots of situations in you know um Baker, Ian Baker Finch for instance um great player great putter he and then he tried to hit the ball longer and he lost his game completely. And he's one of the nicest people you'd ever hope to meet, but he shot 96 in the 1996 uh, British Open. Four years after winning the event, he shot 96, and he couldn't hit a driver on the planet, and that was all mental. And he just let it affect him so badly that that's why he became a commentator, really, at the height of his career. So, um, yeah, they, they've got to exercise an awful lot of forgiveness, and it's a very solitary environment. I mean, that's the thing. It's just you. You could say you have a caddy, I suppose, but it really is just you out there um, in a very naked way, as it were, uh, very exposed. And that's a that's a real crucible that you have to learn to play in. Well, I, I do understand it to a very limited degree. Uh, back in the uh, mid to late 80s, I played on several pro in several pro-ams, some with the LPGA, and one in particular in San Diego at the then Andy Williams uh, San Diego Open. And I was teamed uh, as my professional uh, was Fuzzy Zeller. Okay. And, uh, uh, well, I mean, I was I was ecstatic that I that in the the luck of the draw that I got uh, Fuzzy Zeller at the drawing party. Uh, so, but nonetheless, uh, we went up and we stepped up on the first tee, and it's Fuzzy Zeller, and the tee box was lined with people, down a hundred yards, hundred and fifty, two hundred yards even. The the fairway ropes were lined with people, and I stepped up on that tee box. This is the first pro am I'd ever played in. And I tell you, my knees were knocking, my hands were gripping, (laughs) I was having flop sweats like you wouldn't believe. And I'm just sitting there, jeez, oh man, just let me hit it somewhere down the middle. I don't care if it only goes to the fairway's edge to pass the long grass, just let me hit it somewhere down the middle. And it's just absolutely amazing. And then as you play further, as as it was the case with me, as I played further into the round, I I knew I was going to be okay that day because on the Torrey Pines North Course where we played the first hole is a par five. I got a par. 
I actually took a par, and Zeller had a six. And oh I, wow! And I said, I went, wow, <laughs> this is not, this is going to be okay. And I can almost to this day, and this is in the eighties. I can almost to this day remember every shot on every hole. I can remember what Zeller said when I did certain things, or when he did certain things with the, some of the banter was. And I can remember this is this is what happens. You can re, I can remember hearing what the gallery was saying. Right. And and. and I can just imagine, based on that, what these pros, how what they have to tune out, seriously, in all seriousness. I mean, I've just said earlier, they should be able to play with all the noise they're pros after all. But I can I'm, I can understand, on the other hand, what they're saying. Because I, I remember on a par three hole, I think it was the 17th, maybe the 16th, I don't remember exactly, uh, on the north course, uh, I hit my, uh, my tee ball to the front of the green. I was a little short. I hit it to the front of the green. And somebody says, watch this guy. He could sink this putt. He is really a good putter. Because I was putting hot that day. And and I heard them say that, and I went, oh, God, what is this lump in my throat? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my, my mouth immediately felt like it had cotton balls in it. <laughs> yep. No, it'll do that to you. I mean, it's um, it's it it is it is truly a very nerve-wracking theater to play golf in. I was... Uh, as a young man, I was leading a tournament once and um, was tied for the lead after three rounds with Brett Ogle, and the bathroom was off the first tee, and before we teed off together in the last round, we were both in the bathroom throwing up at the same time. Mm. So um, that's how much nerves, the, 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 and it happens to everybody. Yeah, um, it's just, it, it's terrifying. So, yeah. But it is a process that, you know, but that's, you know, we were talking about two earlier Pete, these kids today that are coming out of college, they've played competitive golf in one form or another for 10 or 12 years. There are junior tours out there now, um, obviously a lot of high school golf. They play amateur golf at the highest levels in state and U.S. amateur championships, and then they play very competitive schedules in college. So they're being prepared a whole lot differently than it was for us 30 or 40 years ago. Oh, that's for sure. Well, I can see by the clock on the wall here that uh, we're getting down to the time that you've got to get off to your meeting, and uh, and I really appreciate the fact that you took the time out of your day to get uh, back on the on the uh, the show with me again. Before we uh, say goodbye for the day, why don't you give us one more uh, shameless self promotion about uh, Bird Golf and uh, how people can get hold of you and uh, how they can find. You. Well, thank you so much, Pete. It's a privilege to be on your show again, and, and we really appreciate that opportunity. But bird golf is very unique in the learning um, arena because of how we work with folks. We only do one or two-on-one schools, so everything is customized for our students. Um, we have an amazing um, team of teachers. So uh, in every way, we want to live up to our registered trademark that I mentioned earlier to give our students the ultimate golf learning experience. And if folks are interested in finding out more about our school, they can visit our website at www.birdgolf.com. So that's B-I-R-D-G-O-L-F.com. We have a pretty comprehensive website. And then, of course, we like to have old-fashioned relationships with folks. So we're available seven days a week to talk to people about their games or to answer any questions they may have about our school. And we can be reached on our toll-free number at 877-424-7346. So that's 
424-724-7346 or read about us on our website at birdgolf, B-I-R-D-G-O-L-F dot com. And we hope that we'll have the chance to help some of your listeners with their games. Well, thank you very much, Jace. It's uh, been a pleasure again talking to you. Uh, good luck in everything that Birth Golf's got going. And uh, who knows, we may find each other somewhere on a golf course, uh, uh, bumping into one another uh, over a cold one. That would be great fun, Pete. Thank you again so very much for having us on the show. Thank you again. Take care now. Thanks so much, Pete. And that was Mr. Jay Ewing of Bird Golf, birdgolf.com. If you're interested in how you can improve your game and have individual playing lessons with some of the teach instructors over a four-, five-, or six-day period, uh, give uh, give them a look up. That's birdgolf.com. Uh, Jay Ewing is the, the head honcho over there and uh, knows his way around the golf course and knows his way around the golf game. With that being said, we're, uh, we're going to wrap up here today. I want to remind everybody that straight down the middle this week, will be coming uh, either record, pre-recorded or live, possibly, from the Phoenix Open, the Waste Management Phoenix Open. Uh, we're going to be heading out there as the days go on and uh, maybe try to find some interviews to put on the air. Uh, we're looking forward to it. It's a great event, and if you're here in the Arizona area, Phoenix area, I hope you can find your way out there and enjoy it, and I hope your team wins the Super Bowl. Uh, at the end of the Phoenix Open, it's time to enjoy the Super Bowl. So uh, it's always a big weekend of sports, especially in in the Arizona desert. With that, we'll say goodbye for today. Enjoy your uh, afternoon, everybody, and come back and listen again tomorrow when we have some more great guests. Take care. interesting conversation to the world. Be sure to follow us on Twitter where we tweet as Boomer and Babe and on Facebook as Pete Peters 47. As always, you can friend us on Blog Talk Radio or sign up for our newsletter at boomerandthebabe.com. Email us at host at boomerandthebabe.com with any of your comments. Remember, at 50, you're just getting started. 